Welcome to Let's Get Two, the baseball podcast from the fans' perspective. Now here's your host, James Christopher. And welcome to Let's Get Two. I'm your host, James Christopher, and we have a packed episode for you. Jeff Lance, the communications director for Minor League Baseball, is here. Dr. Wesley Long from Methodist University in Houston is here to talk a little bit about COVID and what it's going to be like if we are venturing out to some ball games. Jessica Astor is here for the Minor League Mind, and we saw a little bit of live baseball last night. You also might have noticed a very new, very beautiful version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game by Grace Usselman and Katrina Tulawicki. Um, it's sort of an acapella thing, and Grace is such a talented young woman, and uh, she actually does one of our recurring versions as well, the ukulele version, and we always end the show with her ukulele instrumental version of the song. So we're very excited. We want to thank Grace and Katrina for working on that for us. But we do start the show with some breaking news, and and yeah, it's news that I think everybody saw coming. It's news that isn't happy. It's news that isn't good. Major League Baseball has officially canceled the minor league season. So those of you who are listening who aren't fully aware how it works, when we talk about affiliated minor league baseball or the organization MILB, we're talking about teams that are affiliated with major league teams. And so those players are assigned by... Um, for example, I'm wearing the the Corpus Christi Hooks, which is the Astros AA affiliate. So all of the Hooks players are the ones drafted, traded for, signed by the Houston Astros. So now that we're dealing with this pandemic and each major league team has a revolving roster of 60 players for both safety reasons and for convenience, quite frankly, they will not be sending teams to down to their affiliates. So for the Astros, Round Rock won't get a team. The Hooks won't get a team. The Woodpeckers won't get a team, the River Bandits, the Valley Cats. All those teams will be without players, which means no games. And that is why you've seen teams like Round Rock pivot into playing a different kind of baseball this season. So we all kind of knew that was coming. The fact that you saw teams beginning to pivot to find new ways to hopefully monetize their ballparks and provide a little bit of that service to the community is because, again, we all knew it was coming. It was just made official. You know, and and the only way I know to feel about it is that it sucks and it's completely understandable. This is one area where it's completely understandable. I wish they could have made the word official sooner for teams. I wish that it hadn't drug been dragged out and, and gotten to a result that we all knew was coming. But I mean, if you've been following the show, you know that that's Major League Baseball's thing. But we feel for all of these teams. We feel for these small businesses that are having to lay workers off and that are going to try to figure out how to stay in business, hoping that when we roll around to April of 2021, they can go back to some sense of sort of normalcy of having games and then being able to be close to capacity for the seating. And so, you know, all I can say is, 
Keep them in your thoughts. Keep um, supporting them as best you can. Keep buying gear. Do whatever you can to make sure that they know that that you're out there and that you care and that you're a, a part of this community, particularly if you live in a minor league city like I do. And if you listen to the show, it's only because you love minor league baseball. And so you know that those teams have not failed for a second to be there for you. So I hope that everybody will um, will get through this. And it's dark, and I'm afraid that in the in in the realm of some minor league teams, the dark days uh, haven't passed us yet. We've still got more to go, but hopefully, we can all just pull together as a community and get through this. But like I said, we have a packed show, so let's dive in. This just in: news from minor league baseball. So we're excited to welcome to the show, though we wish it was under better circumstances, friend of the show Jeff Lance, who is the minor league baseball's communication director. Jeff, how's it going? Well, it's a tough morning, uh, but, you know, last night was not ideal by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, I think everybody saw er that result coming. It was just a matter of time, probably, and, uh, you know, it it takes the the burden off a lot of our teams with the uncertainty and everything like that, so it gives everybody a chance to start preparing for 2021 and, you know, and, and try and find other ways to generate some revenue this year. I want to go back to that then because you're right. Exactly. The writing was on the wall. The minute that they said that it was a 30 man roster with a taxi squad, which was over a month ago, that meant no affiliated minor league baseball. Um, We're talking about a collection, mostly of small businesses that are going to need to find a way to create revenue. Is that the most frustrating part at this point that it did take them so long to actually be official with that decision? Um. I mean, I think everybody was holding out hope that we could still at least get in three months. Um, and, you know, really, a lot of our leagues, the weather, we probably, if we had to, we could play through October in most of our markets. Um, you know, I think, you know, <laughs> if you look at it, the, the temperatures in October are probably better than a lot of places than they are in April uh, in the Midwest League and Eastern League. So, and those are our cold weather leagues, really. So, you know, there was some hope that we could play in, you know, July, August, September, and possibly October, but, um, you know, that's obviously not ideal because you're going up against high school football on Fridays, college football Saturdays, and NFL on Sunday, but, you know, there's still, you know, if you, if you can draw 1,500 people on a Friday night or Saturday afternoon or Sunday, that's still better than the zero we're going to get otherwise. So there was still some hope, but, you know, it was, it was, uh, fleeting as the schedule got into mid-June you know it was uh became harder and harder to envision with the with the lack of testing and everything that needs to be done and and just our operations model you know everybody rides buses and it's just you know the hotels switching hotels all the time it's just logistically with the testing it would have been almost impossible So um, I guess, and I don't even know why this next question matters, except I'm looking for any positive humanity in a world where that seems to be increasingly fleeting. Was there any sense of, man, we're really sorry to do this, but this is what's going to happen? Or was it a pretty cold decision the way the the way the word was delivered? No, you know, we, it was, uh, like I said, everybody's kind of seen the writing on the wall and kind of knew it was coming. So I think everybody was emotionally prepared for the news. uh, But obviously, 
you know, you hate getting that note saying, hey, it's it's over for this year because, you know, I started thinking about the people that work at a lot of these teams, you know, and the ones that haven't already been furloughed or laid off, you know, they're looking (laughs) – they're probably staring that as their next option for a lot of these teams. And, and, you know, that's difficult for everybody. You know, nobody wants to be laid off, obviously, and nobody wants to lay their staff members off. So it's – you know, when we finally got the word, it was uh, obviously not ideal, but it's uh, unfortunately the, the way we had to go. You know, you you did talk about the fact that the writing was on the wall and a lot of teams pivoted. And what I love about about this organization that is minor league baseball, the the affiliated MILB, is a lot of them pivoted to still doing things community-focused, drive-ins. Um, the, of course, the Round Rock Express and a couple of other teams have made temporary deals with the TCL. But just explain what impact this is really going to have industry-wide. Because even Round Rock now having 15, I think, TCL home games isn't going to replace the 60 they were supposed to have. So what what are we looking at as far as the industry of minor league baseball? And I think in particularly teams owned not by parent companies, because I think that's a little different yeah. deal. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that we are really a collection of small businesses makes this just as hard for – you know, our teams as it is for the corner store down the street. You know, it's uh, our teams have a limited number of days a year where they can make money to begin with. And those are usually pretty big days financially for our teams. Now they're they're replacing a crowd of 9,000 on a Friday night with fireworks and, and everybody's drinking beer and eating hot dogs with a drive-in movie where everybody has to stay in their car and nobody's really drinking beer. And, you know, the, it's great that they can open the ballparks and do some things and let people in, but the revenues are not nearly comparable to what baseball brings in for them. Um, you know, a lot of our teams are getting really creative. I'm sure you've seen Pensacola turn their stadium into an Airbnb. Tried to convince uh, my wife into going and she said, no. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I wish I lived a little closer to Pensacola cause I'd do that in a minute. But, um, <laughs> But, you know, our, our teams are are staffed with an incredible number of very creative and talented people that are coming up with ideas just like that. Um, you know, team in Reno is doing a lot of creative stuff. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's going on everywhere, really. Um, you know, and that's great to see that, you know, they're not having to cut staff and, and you know, push people out the door because of financial concerns. But, um you know, there are teams that are doing that. And, and long-term, you know, this hit is going to be, it's going to take a few years for our teams to recover for this. You know, it, the people that say you had a, a fence sign and a season ticket package and maybe a suite rental for a night, you know, and you spent $12,000 on that with Corpus Christi, you know, they might say, we'll give it to you next year, but then that's $12,000 that, Corpus Christi won't make next year. Right. And, you know, it's really, uh, you know, it's going to be a problem for our teams for probably another two or three years down the road as they're continuing to do the make goods on, on the things that they couldn't deliver this year. Um, and, you know, it's just, uh, it's going to be really hard for a lot of teams to make it without some kind of federal assistance or, you know, it's worst case scenario, probably bankruptcy filings. You know, 
and assuming there'll be a major league season, and I'm, I'll be honest, I'm 50-50 on that. I, I, I still think, was it really just a matter of you think logistically it would have been too hard, or do you think Major League Baseball didn't much care about – it seems like you could have at least kicked your practice squad players to at least your double-A affiliates, which generally are smaller in league and, and, and mm-hmm. footprint. Do you think that there was not an interest in doing that, or do you think that it really was just too hard logistically? I think it's just – it's almost impossible logistically with, with all the travel these guys do. Um, you know, you have that many guys. You can't really control them like you maybe can in the big leagues where you keep them in these five-star hotels where there's only so many ways out. You know, there's only so much trouble they can get into. But, you know, our guys are staying at Hampton Inns and, and Courtyard by Marriott's where, you know, if they really want to get out and see the town a little bit at night, they they certainly can. So, and the number of tests that you would have to do, I mean, it would just, you know, and really one of the bigger problems was that, you know, say you're in a Texas league. Well, uh, whatever the state laws are in Texas might be different than what they are in Oklahoma or Arkansas as far as, you know, size of gatherings that you can have and whether or not people are being quarantined in one state or another when they come to visit. Um, you know, Florida is a prime example. You know, if somebody comes into Florida or leaves Florida, chances are they're going to get quarantined somewhere right now, uh, wherever they're heading. So it, it was just, there were just so many factors in it. Um, you know, and I think, you know, Major League Baseball, they're, with the taxi squads and, and extra players that they're keeping, you know, I think it makes sense to have those players as close to your Major League City as possible, whether it's your double-A affiliate, your triple-A affiliate, or even a class-A affiliate. You know, if they have a nice facility, you want to put your guys – you want to keep them as close as you can. So if, you know, somebody wakes up with a stiff neck and they go and get treatment at the stadium in the morning and can't make it – can't answer the bell for the day game, you can get that guy from South Bend up to Wrigley Field. So, you know, I think it makes sense for them to have their guys nearby. Um. You know the the thing about all of this is is it's always under the dark cloud of with the changing relationship of minor league baseball, and major league baseball is looking at, and the stories that started breaking in October um, with the possible contraction, things like that, and then you had almost immediately governmental political action to stop that. They obviously have bigger fish to fry. So, um, you know, and I'm I'm looking at part of this, and part of me can't help but you know, put on a tinfoil hat and say that some of the way that this has been manipulated by Major League Baseball has been to help move in that endeavor. If teams can't have can't have a season, they might not exist, which might make contraction easier for them. I mean, where do we sit with that now? I mean, have y'all had any discussions well, any further? Uh, they had some discussions back in April and kind of agreed to, you know, let's get the season rolling before we can – really start worrying about all this, but um, I mean, the way I look at it is, you know, even if the PBA weren't expiring in this September and we still had the coronavirus hit, I still don't think we play a season, you know, like for all the reasons we've talked about, you know, just the logistics of playing in this, in today's world, it's nearly impossible. Right. I mean, you see, MLB, the NBA, you know, eventually the NFL and college football, they're going to have big problems getting their seasons rolling and 
keeping everybody healthy. And, you know, I think that something that impacts our business model as much as the coronavirus does, and with obviously with the cancellation of our season now, you know, financially, it's going to be really hard for our teams to survive. Um, you know, Pat O'Connor, our president yesterday said that he wouldn't be surprised if half of our teams had real difficulty making it through this. Um, so, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to think that Major League Baseball isn't using this to their advantage. Um, you know, I, I, I just don't see how we would have played anyways. You know, and it just so happens that it's a PBA negotiating year. But, right. um, you know, it's, uh, it's just unfortunate all the way around. And, you know, Pawtucket won't get to have their farewell season at McCoy Stadium. And, you know, you look at Wichita and Fredericksburg and Rocket uh, City. Rocket City and all these places that aren't yeah. getting to open there. You know, they, they have people working around the clock for months and months getting those ballparks ready for their home opener. And now they have a, another year to wait. And that's disappointing too. But, um, you know, it's really nothing we can do about it. Right. And, that, you know, I think the thing that worries me is like a lot of the teams on those leaked lists were already in, in sort of depressed financial economic areas. And I just, I just hope there's a way that they can find a way to survive. And I think yeah. um, I actually got out to watch Round Rock play their first um, TCL game last night. And, and okay did not realize how much I actually missed being in the stands of a baseball game. And so it's yeah. going to be crushing. Um, one of the things, you know, we've watched through the media and we've talked about on the show um, a bunch, how the players union and MLB didn't really negotiate. They just sort of yelled at each other through the media with, where, where every offer was like a non-starter. That ha- has that been the tone of the discussions with you guys when you've had them, or has it been a bit more, we're trying to figure out how to make this work? No, I think it's been more productive and, and, you know, constructive. Um, you know, it's, uh, they've kind of given us an idea of what they're looking for and, and, you know, whether it's facilities or travel, um, you know, it's some realignment ideas and, and we're just, you know, trying to find ways that we can make it work that will benefit our teams and theirs. You know, it's, uh, but there's a lot of things to work through and, and, you know, there's a lot of things that are outside of the scope of just, you know, facilities and travel. It's, you know, ticket taxes, uh, you know, who's going to pay for bats and balls, all those kind of things too. So there's, there's a lot of factors involved. It's not as, it's not just a, a geographical reset of the leagues or anything like that. There's, there's a whole lot of business aspects to it as well that, you know, there's, there's a lot of bills to pay when it comes to player development and yeah. uh, you know, it's uh, it's been a good relationship for a long time and hopefully we can uh, you know, keep that going. I hope so too. You know, when I read the first proposal, like some of it just didn't add up for me, like talking about long bus rides yet. None of the teams in the Texas league were on the list. And those I think are the biggest, I mean, those guys in Midland telling me about going to Arkansas. That's a rough, Oh man. Yeah. That's a rough bus ride, man. Um, yeah. You know, so I always like to end things with you when we talk about this stuff. Like, how can we help? Like, how can fans, um, I mean, you know, is it buying gear? Is it just continuing to, to do what we can to kind of support these teams financially? Yeah, you know, if there's a, an event at the ballpark and, and you feel comfortable going out and wearing the mask and all the take all the precautions that you'd have to, uh, 
you know, if, if there's an event, whether it's a, a TCL game in Round Rock or, um, you know, driving movie night in Colorado Springs, uh, you know, get out and support the teams if you can. Uh, you know, they're going to put on a great show for you no matter what they're doing. So um, whether it's concessions, you know, some teams are just having drive through concessions available for people that want a little ballpark fix, mm-hmm. you know, every little bit helps, you know, and, and it's, uh, and the teams are certainly appreciative of, of the fan support too. So what are you going to be doing to kind of keep, I mean, now that you, you you've like, how are you going to keep occupied until we get rolling in 2021? <laughs> Man, that's a, that was what I started thinking about when I woke up this morning, like, damn, what's now, <laughs> what's next, you know? So, uh, you know, it's just, you hope, Major League Baseball is able to pull off their season. You have something to watch on TV at night, hopefully. Um, you know, I'll, I'll miss the game as much as anybody in the minor league level. And it's, um, you know, very disappointing for everybody, I think. But uh, I guess now I don't have any excuses. It's not getting a little better shape and, uh, <laughs> you know, fix my golf game. All right, so we are welcoming to Let's Get To again. We talked to you um, in real time, Dr. Long, three months ago in COVID time, somewhere around 18 years ago, uh, we spoke. Um, real quick, can you tell everybody your, your, um, your resume real quick? Because it's long and I always got it confused. Sure. So I'm an MD-PhD clinical pathologist. I'm board certified in clinical microbiology and uh, medical director of diagnostic microbiology here at Houston Methodist, and also and now soon to be associate, officially tomorrow I'll be associate professor of pathology and genomic medicine uh, here at the hospital uh, as well. So um, that's, that's the, the short bullet resume there. I really wish they would have given me such cool recommend, like uh, words to say with my film degree. And it just usually means that uh, you want to be a barista. Um, all, all jokes aside. So tell me something. So, you know, you and I, you and I spoke about this, you were on our show again, three months ago, very frank, very open. Um, it seems like, you know, I had this idea when we were going into this and you were very upfront about how serious it would be that I kind of thought we would have this rally around the flag. We are going to war. And instead, everything that's bad about our culture right now has devolved into misinformation about this virus. Thoughts on that? Um, so I, I do think that, you know, I think basically what happened was, you know, for several months, for March and April, um, we had lockdown orders and stay-at-home orders. And everybody rallied around that concept and staying at home and, you know, clap for the healthcare workers. And, um, and we saw some of the seriousness in areas like New York city and some things on the news and what was possible. And, um, and we were kind of on the trajectory on a, on a, with the infection at that point that in very early March, it looked like it could be quite bad, but because we did all those things very rapidly, um, and everybody was very compliant and very on board. Um, we did a really good job of really halting a lot of the spread of the virus. Uh, and it was hard. I mean, it was very hard work. Um, you know, it's hard on people, hard on families, hard on kids. Uh, but we were very successful. And so I think, unfortunately, um, because we were so successful, uh, going into sort of May, there was, you know, fatigue from all those measures. 
there was the phenomenon of if you didn't know someone personally uh, who was affected or had a bad case, or if you know somebody who had a very mild case, you know, the sort of um, the sort of thing where you hear people say, well, I didn't know anybody that had it, or I don't, you know, uh, and certainly in, in a lot of smaller, more rural areas, less dense populations, there weren't a lot of cases typically. Um, and so in any case, I think all of those things kind of combined in May is a sort of, there was, you know, fatigue and a desire to, you know, get out and about. And I think that coupled with states starting to reopen, starting to let businesses operate again and, and do things again, that, um, you know, at first everybody was like, okay, we, you know, have to wear a mask, whatever. But the, sort of all of those things combined into May, just kind of general fatigue of, well, it's over. Like we did it. We flattened the curve. We're good. And I think what most of us in healthcare kept trying to message was like, hey, this virus is still out there. It's still circulating. We're still diagnosing people with it every day. Um, but, you know, that kind of got lost in the noise of, oh, you know, now school's just canceled and we're out. And then that, you know, sort of fed into Memorial Day. Um, and then Memorial Day was sort of like, it's the start of summer, we're out of school. And I think a lot of people at Memorial Day just wanted to sort of take that collective sigh of, you know, and release of all this pent up energy. Um, and, uh, but the unfortunate thing I think at that point, at least in Houston, if you look at our numbers, they really already started to go up really all the way back into mid-May. The numbers have started to really slowly trend back upwards. And so then you get into uh, Memorial Day and, you know, uh, summer and, and everything, people, you know, things reopening and then, Nobody, you know, nobody's wearing masks, nobody's worried about social distancing anymore, and that's led to us then now getting to where we are uh, with this really rapid rise in cases. So I really think that's kind of what, how we got to where we are right now. So where do you think we need to go next as far as, um, you know, flattening the curve? Again, I mean, it's a word, I guess we're still, a phrase we're still using. Um, I don't know that the governor is going to take us back because he's still a politician who's going to need to run for re-election someday. Where do you think we're going to need to go? So I think it's, I, I think, um, you know, by and large, the, what we really need to do is we, you know, right. I mean, barring any political action, political, you know, shutdown orders, et cetera, um, is that people need to basically practice all the things we've learned, all the things we learned in March and April, um, all the good habits, the hand washing is critical, um, you know, wearing a mask or a face covering in public, uh, minimizing your trips out into public again. So trying to go to the store every day, trying to go to, uh, you know, these crowded places every day. Don't go, don't go to crowded places, period. You know, avoiding unnecessary social gatherings, avoiding unnecessarily crowded places, basically hunkering down at home as much as you can. And when you do go out, you know, wearing a mask, having the hand sanitizer, washing your hands, um, you know, all of those things are important. And then if you are sick, uh, staying home. Um, if you've been exposed to someone who tests positive, uh, you know, quarantining yourself at home until you test negative or symptom free, uh, you know, for a long enough period. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's all that all of those things are really important. Um, and, you know, I think we've got a little bit of help now with some of the mask orders and things have been reissued because so much of wearing a mask is almost peer pressure. If you walk into a store, um, I experienced this a couple of weeks ago when I went, went camping. I was in kind of a small town 
you know, a couple hours outside Houston. Whereas, you know, in Houston, wear my mask all the time. They go in the store, you know, and at that point, eh, they half and half mask, no mask. But, you know, you go to, if you go to a store and the only person wearing a mask is the cashier and none of the other customers wearing a mask and you wear a mask, there's sort of a peer pressure of like, why am I wearing a mask? You know, what's wrong with me? But if everybody's wearing masks, you know, it's kind of the reverse, right? If you feel, it, if you see everybody wearing a mask, you're going to be more likely to wear one, feel better about wearing it, whatever. So, um, I think we need a little bit of help in that regard, but really, I mean, the, the sad thing is, um, the viruses are very, very simple. Um, they're really, by many definitions, not even alive. They are completely dependent upon other living cells, other living organisms to reproduce and spread. Um, and so they're entirely dependent on us and our behavior. Uh, without us getting infected, going and infecting other people, you know, viruses can't, they're not magical. They can't do that on their own. They're dependent on the host to basically get sick and spread it. So to get out of the situation we're in now, the only way we can do that, um, and I think government or, governmental orders can be helpful in enforcing certain kinds of human behavior, but ultimately it's down to sort of our behavior and do we take it seriously? Do we do the things we need to do? You know, and do we, you know, stay home on 4th of July or do we go to the crowded beach uh, with a <laughs> bunch of folks? And I've, se- I've seen Jaws, man. I know how this ends up. Exactly. Um, one of the things we can't escape from all of this, and I'm not going to ask you any direct political questions because of your position, but politics is part of it. And um, the mask has been politicized. So straight up for people, how effective is it if I'm wearing a face mask, a, a, a bandana. I mean, I actually have, I mean, I bought into this and bought about 12, like I've got my Def Leppard one on the way. Um, how effective is a mask really and truly for, for preventing the virus? Right. So there've been, there've been different studies on masks and there's, um, you know, there's some variation in, you know, the type of material that's used, how tightly woven it is. If you're talking, especially in cloth masks that people are making themselves, um, you know, versus, surgical masks like I've got one here versus, you know, an N95 style mask like I have here. Um, they all have sort of different levels of effectiveness, but the key point is that they're all much, much better at blocking respiratory droplets um, than nothing at all. And so the key benefit of the mask is um, it's going to help if you are infected and you don't know it. Um, Quite a few people, and quite a few people are infected and have little to no symptoms. Um, it's going to help prevent you from spreading your respiratory droplets out of your mouth, um, you know, onto surfaces, onto your hands, or then you touch things or touch people, or you know, hopefully people aren't shaking hands anymore. But you know, those sorts of behaviors. If you're coughing, it's just going to be effective at helping to reduce those respiratory droplets to reduce the chance of transmission. Um, and then the other part of that is it may help prevents you from either inhaling respiratory droplets if you're somewhere where someone coughs, you know, right in front of you or right around you, or it's also going to keep you from touching your own face and mouth. So if you touch a surface that's contaminated, you're not going to put your fingers to your mouth and then ingest the virus uh, or inhale it that way. So, you know, it, it, it's all better than nothing. Even the cloth mat, you know, bandana, whatever you've got is better than nothing. I'm a big fan. I'll be honest. I'm a big fan of the disposable surgical mask. Not an N95, but um, N95s get comfortable over time, and we need them in healthcare. But I think disposable surgical masks are pretty common now, commonly available. Um, I like, I find they're lighter weight and more comfortable for me than the cloth masks 
honestly. Um, I'm also used to wearing them from work. But, uh, you know, just find, the, I think the most important thing is to find something you can wear to cover your face that, that you'll wear, that you like, that's comfortable for you. Um, those are really the key points. And it's, it's one of the best things we can do to block those respiratory droplets. Because even, even when, you know, we know I mean, respiratory droplets, one of the main ways when you're sick, you cough and you eject a lot of droplets. But we also now know from, you know, more studies have been done that uh, if you're talking really animatedly, if you're talking loudly or shouting, uh, you tend to produce more respiratory droplets to get ejected. If you're singing in a choir, um, you're actually ejecting a ton of respiratory droplets. Hopefully choirs are not practicing right now. But, um, you know, early on there was a choir, uh, some, I can't, it was all over the news, you know, this one choir where they went and like two thirds of the choir got infected after like this one practice. So um, anyway, it's just good at blocking those respiratory droplets and helping prevent you from ingesting them or inhaling them. But mainly it's, it, it's one of those. It's one of those things too. Mainly, it's really good at helping preventing helping prevent you from accidentally transmitting it uh, if you don't know yourself. And if and if we all wear one, then we're not transmitting to anyone. Right. Exactly. Directly. Which or, really help block transmission. Right. When you're um, the other political side of this, again, I don't want you necessarily want you to weigh in, but the reality is, as the virus becomes more divisive, things like um, government help with unemployment is going to start to dry up. Right. The idea of people being able to self-isolate as much as possible is going to become a little bit harder just on the survival area um, or survival just for survive, survivability. If we have to be out, um, what are some ways that we can protect ourselves? Masks, hand sanitizer, staying apart. I mean, is that is it as simple as that? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the um, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I do think, I've, you know, some of the best sort of adherence to practices I've seen in the community have been employees at certain store, you know, grocery stores and stuff where they've erected plexiglass barriers. Um, all the employees are wearing masks. They have ample hand sanitizer available. Um, they're sanitizing the cart for you when you walk in, um, offering you hand sanitizer when you walk into the store. Those are great. Uh, those are good things. So I would, I would support businesses that are doing those sorts of things. I, I went to a, uh, I went out to dinner for Father's Day. Um, kind of last minute, went really early, uh, so it wasn't crowded. And actually the restaurant we went to was following all the rules, operating at low capacity. Everybody was wearing masks. They actually checked my family's temperature when we entered the restaurant, which I appreciated. Because um, then I knew they were doing that to everybody else that was in the restaurant and had been, you know, so that's, that's cool. So I think you have to find those places that are really following the rules and going the extra mile to try to protect not just their employees, but protect you as a customer and support those businesses. Um, and then when you yourself are going out for whatever you're going out for, yeah, wear the mask, bring the hand sanitizer in case you can't get to a sink to wash your hands for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, avoid crowded places. If you go someplace uh, and it is crowded, you know, if you walk through the door and it's crowded, I think it was the mayor of Houston said yesterday or something, if you go somewhere and it's crowded, turn around and walk out. Like if you can, yeah. you know, just try to avoid it if at all possible. And just try to kind of plan ahead and minimize those trips um, so that you're not going to three different stores for groceries or, you know, uh, those sorts of things. So it's, it's, yeah, I mean, sort of, uh, those are all numerous things, uh, numerous things that we can do and just being, uh, you know, really trying to avoid big crowds, large crowds, parties, things that you, things that are optional. Um, because as the infection rate increases in the community, it's just, the more infected, the more infected people there are in a community, the smaller the gathering size gets. Where 
you're still likely to be infected, right? So if one in 100 people, two in 100 people, you get like one in 50 people, one in 40 people, it's like that circle of, you know, possible infection, that number of people gets smaller and smaller. So um, in terms of exposure risk. So you just have to really, really be cognizant of that. Um, and it's, you know, and it's, yeah, you're traveling, it's tough. Uh, you know, I mean, I would even say like, you know, you leave the bathroom before you leave the house to try to avoid the fact that you're going to go to like the gas station and go, Oh, I need to use the gas station bathroom or right. you know, something like that. Just to try to plan ahead um, when you can for those sorts of things. You are a proud graduate of the university of Texas. Are we going to get any form of college football this year, even with the without fans? I really hope so. I really hope so, but I'm a whole lot less. I'm feeling definitely less good about that. <laughs> As the days go by, I was I was more optimistic back in March, and then I was feeling pretty optimistic in May, and now I'm I'm struggling with it because it's going to be hard. I definitely think colleges are going to restart um, either with a hybrid model or in person in the beginning because uh, I think that's a prerequisite, right? You got to have kids there to have student athletes there, and then. Um, but beyond that, it's it's tricky because yeah, and and again, the most young, healthy people do well with COVID, but not all. So what you know, what's the acceptable risk? Uh, you know, if you do have an athlete who has a, a complicated course, um, so it's really tricky, uh, and it's just going to be interesting to see. Um, how this current wave sort of goes and what the trajectory of it is. And if it, if it has, because I really honestly expected this to be happening more in like October or September, what we're seeing right now. So the fact that we're seeing it right now makes it very hard for me to predict sort of the shape of this curve and where it's going to be um, and what's going to happen in the fall when we have our regular flu season and everything else. So I would like to think it's going to happen. Um, again, I don't know about fans, uh, but you know, I mean, it's going to, it's going to require the schools are going to have to be, I mean, they're going to have to be testing the athletes before the games and quarantining them. And I have, I mean, the travel stuff, Yeah, uh, it's going to be really hard. So I don't know if it'll be an abbreviated schedule. Um, I think, you know, it's such, it's one of those things, you know, there's so much money tied up in it that I think there's a lot of, uh, interest in doing it and I think you know, I think there's a lot of love national love for it and love for the game and I think the, a lot of the athletes love the game at the same time there's so much potential liability that that kind of counterbalances yeah. and uh, and it's just hard to predict with the unpredictability of this virus to some extent and the unpredictability of sort of human behavior and where things go so I'm really hopeful because man I miss it as much as everybody else but I don't know at this point at this point I'd say it's a toss-up we are here on the, the second edition of the new segment, The Minor League Mind, with Jess Canaster. Uh, Jess, I wish we could be talking about better news, but what we all kind of knew is now official. How you doing, man? Uh, good, thanks, James. I mean, I think among the minor league baseball world, people either familiarized with it or currently working in it uh, knew that uh, the news of, of – uh, Yesterday of, of June 30th was coming that the season was going to be canceled. I mean, you put together the fact that uh, all the teams weren't going to be able to have, or most teams weren't going to have their full rosters because there were going to be the 60-man squads, uh, as many as 60-man squads up uh, in the majors. 
Uh, major league teams already staking claims to putting taxi squads in minor league ballparks. Uh, you know, you put two and two together there. But then also, I think, I think the biggest thing is, uh, uh, you know, major uh, pro sports around the world can play in empty uh, stadiums because they make the majority of their money. They make a lot of money on in-person uh, interaction, too. They make most of their money on advertising from television and radio and Internet. And so you can still watch games on TV uh, and get a pretty similar experience to what it would be like to be in a major league baseball game. Cause the experience is see, look, we have the best baseball players in the world, minor league baseball. We can't operate without fans because we are about the fans. It, it, it is about making sure the fans have a good time and that's really where it's different. So I think, you know, most minor league people, uh, if not all minor league people knew it was coming, uh, maybe not, that it was coming yesterday, but it's news that we've had to, to reckon with for a while. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily made any easier by it actually coming to fruition, but at least uh, now the thought can be, because it's just how minor league baseball works, 2021, opening day 2021, start thinking about April, start thinking about how things can be different, how, how things will have to be different. And, uh, uh, and, and uh, start getting ready to start the engines back up again. Okay, so I want to take, two, I want to take this from two angles. Um, we did discuss, we had Jeff Lance on the show uh, today, and, you know, he painted a pretty, you know, I guess the picture that's accurate, that, that there are going to be some teams that are just not going to survive this. And I've spoken with a couple of uh, presidents of minor league teams who talked about the fact that, even though some of them were able to pivot better than others, they still had to do a lot of layoffs. Maybe paint a picture for people exactly the types of people that are working for minor league teams. I think we can all talk about it in the macro, but these are small businesses that are in sometimes people's first jobs. They are people's first time doing anything. What is the makeup of, of, a, of a minor league staff, I guess? Well, I think, uh, you know, first and foremost, you have your front offices and your front offices are made up of, of more career type people, uh, some of which are fresh out of college. It's their first full time job out of, out of college, maybe uh, maybe an internship with another team prior or with with the same team that they're now full time with. Um, but it's it could be, you know, probably their, their first or second job uh, a couple of years removed from college. And so they're still trying to find their footing in the world. There's, there's plenty of people who are uh, lifers in minor league baseball within a front office uh, specifically who, um, you know, like, like the Jethawks, for example, the Lancaster Jethawks. We, we have a guy who's been the facilities manager since the inception of the Jethawks in 1996. So he's, he's been around forever. And, you know, there are, there are plenty of, for, for, for everyone like him, there are plenty of guys around minor league baseball who that could be, that could have been their first job and they just never left. They, they liked the new community or it was their community and they didn't want to leave. Uh, so that's kind of a front office where you, you, know, you have a mishmash and then you have plenty of people within a front office who are looking to move up over time. But for the time being, you know, they're looking to get a footing uh, in the pro sports world. Um, you have interns who are maybe still in college who are looking to get that full-time job eventually in minor league baseball. And you know, those are people who are no longer able to get real world uh, sports experience this year. Cause it's really, if you're doing sales or whatever it may be at a minor league level, 
it really is only minor league in, in name only. In sales, you're still you're still talking to clients. Yeah. You're still uh, doing everything you would be at the major league level. It's just maybe a slightly smaller scale, but you're still being asked to do a lot. And then you have, uh, I think, the real, uh, the most heartbreaking part of all of this is the, uh, from the staff angle, is the community. And you have plenty of people who are, maybe it's their first job ever, talking high schoolers uh, or people who, who just never, never worked before. So they'll come out, they'll be ticket takers, they'll be concessionaires, they'll work in the souvenir store, they might be the mascot, they might do, uh, you know, some of the, the all sorts of game day stuff, having had no experience working in baseball or sports or experience working at all. And then you have the flip side of it, you have plenty of people who maybe have retired, and it might be one of the last jobs they want to have before they uh, finish working altogether. And it's just something to do in the summertime. Uh, it's not for the money. It's just to get out of the house and to be around baseball, be around families who, who are there to have fun, who want to have fun and help be a part of that. And then the in-between, obviously, people who are collecting an extra paycheck uh, because their first job isn't good enough. So they, they have uh, a second job so that they can help provide more for their family. So there really is, I think, uh, all walks of life represented in a minor league front office. It's a little bit more spread out maybe than uh, just, you know, aiming at, at one group of people in one place, unless you just say the whole organization represents really the community because you have the career people and the people who are just looking for a summer job and then everywhere in between. I think that's the thing that's the most devastating. So, you know, you've now worked for, if I'm counting correctly, four organizations is that correct quad cities midland san jose and um lancaster for four affiliated uh organizations and a collegiate summer league team my research department is going to get fired we're we are getting rid of those guys um so, yes for for an affiliated baseball we'll go with that we'll go with that so you relatively have a finger on a pulse on what a lot of these communities look like feel like Midlands in, in San Jose, probably two of your bigger towns that you were in. I know to call Midland a big town is probably, but it's not small. I mean, it's a, it's a mid-sized city. Um, how long do you think it's going to take some of these towns to recover, some of these teams? Well, well I think, uh, I mean, it really depends first and foremost on what next year looks like. Um, both from a financial standpoint, if uh, you know if there's any sort of Major League Baseball, uh, I don't want to say help because it doesn't seem like that's what it's going to be. But if there's any Major League Baseball money coming into minor league teams uh, to kind of help jumpstart things again, because uh, there are some communities that just it, it, uh, uh, minor league baseball organizations are like a pendulum. If the pendulum stops swinging it takes a lot to get it going again. It can't just start up on its own. It needs a push. And so I think if, uh, if teams can operate as normal, you'll find uh, it could be relatively quickly that uh, orgs are able to get back on their feet. But uh, then there's also the whole pandemic thing that's still going on and who knows how long it's going to be going on for. And uh, uh, it could very well affect how, uh, the operating or the, the uh, uh, standard operating procedure can be for minor league teams that they can fill a ballpark 100%. If they can put people on the berm, if they have to keep people off the berm, if they're going every other section or every other row, 
I mean, money in uh, in minor league baseball, money money earned allows there to be money spent. And if there's not money earned, there can't be money spent. So, um, you know, a place like San Jose might recover a little bit sooner just because there's more people there and more people means more opportunities to get people out to the ballpark. And I think that's probably what is going to be the biggest determining factor with a lot of organizations uh, is what their, what their community uh, makeup is in terms of size. Uh, let's put your uh, people around there's more people to come out let's put your your um your your far-seeing i'm trying to, i was trying to remember the character johnny carson played when he would karnak your karnak hat with, on. The, with the envelope yeah with the envelope so you know um the thing that you and i've been discussing i think since october um has been this threat of contraction and do you foresee um, and I'll and I'll and I'll give some background without naming names. I've spoken to some presidents of teams who are uh, affiliated but not owned by their major league partners. And one guy said he had heard from his major league parent team three times since this started, all on phone calls he made. Um, con- contrast that with um, some of the teams that were contracted or on the contraction list that leaked were attempted to have been bought by a team already. Uh, and then they were turned down and they all of a sudden ended up on a list, therefore devaluing their franchise. Yes, I'm getting pretty tinfoil hat on this. Do you see that being, you talked about infusing money. Do you see an attempt by these big teams to start buying up some more of these uh, minor league squads to infuse with money and therefore take ownership of the team? Well, I, I think uh, uh, what Pat O'Connor said yesterday, uh, going back to the original question uh, or the first question uh, of, uh, you know, the news and did we see it coming and any and all sorts of that. I think the thing that shocked me personally the most was just how heavily uh, affected so many teams in minor league baseball could be. Uh, Pat O'Connor saying yesterday that more than or north of 50% of the teams uh, might not be financially solvent, depending on government or, uh, governmental help and then major league help. So that'll, you know, that'll play a part. But I, I think, uh, Potentially, we may find ourselves in a spot where Major League Baseball wants four affiliates per team, and you know that means 120 teams. And if there are more than 42 teams, even list not included, if there are more than 40 teams or 40 or 42 teams who are not financially solvent, a list doesn't matter anymore. And then it becomes, can Major League Baseball even get themselves to 120 minor league teams? Um, for four affiliates per organization. And I think if that is the case, you'll see more major league teams trying to scoop up uh, minor league organizations because they want to be able to uh, have minor league baseball for the uh, player development side. And I think, uh, uh, you know, they may not necessarily see the value, and then maybe they do see the value in, uh, what major league team or what minor league baseball can provide to major league baseball and it's you know grooming fans grooming players and getting people interested in the game but uh, uh no I, I think that's going to be a determining factor is how many teams really need financial help uh, because i think major league baseball wants to make money uh anywhere they can i mean i think everybody wants to make money anywhere they can <laughs> But Major League Baseball, it seems like, has shown uh, a little bit less of a uh, uh, 
they, they, they seem to be a little bit more brave in going after what they want. Let's say it that way. Uh, And I think it's fair to paint the picture too, for people that a lot of these businesses, you know, these, these teams are small businesses and they're owned by families. These are not, um, you know, the guy that owns the Astros owns restaurants and sanitation companies and the Astros is a thing they own. In many of these cases, these are what they hope to be their retirements, their, their hair. And I know it's, still richer problems than what you and I have, but these, we're not talking about billionaires that own these teams. Well, yeah, I mean, there's 160 owners in, in full, in full season baseball, 120 owners in full season minor league baseball, and then all the short season teams. And there are some uh, teams that are, that are some organizations that are owned by an ownership group that have four or five, but for the most part, it's one ownership group per team. And in a lot of cases, these ownership groups are people who, spent money on a minor league team and then the money that they continue to spend on that team is directly uh, correlated to what they make. And I think that's so unique among pro sports in this country where you, you do have the affiliations uh, for some minor league teams, but there are some minor league teams that are, you know, somebody had a few million dollars, so they bought a minor league team, but if they stop making money on that team, they can't afford it anymore. And uh, I think that that is hard to grasp with how much money exists in pro sports at the top level, that there could be any sort of pro sports that aren't like that. Uh, and, and so, you know, the idea that a minor league baseball team, even a double or a triple A team, that they're a small business doesn't really seem to make sense, but it really is a, a you know, a mom and pop organization or a mom and pop uh, operation. Sometimes, Quite literally, uh, there was a team in the California League who was bought in the offseason uh, last year by uh, a husband and wife, and their son works for the organization. So, you know. There it is. All right, Jess, <laughs> we'll have you on in a couple of weeks. Hopefully, we'll, we'll, we'll have some, some, at least some information on contraction. Until then, you guys stay safe. Give our love to Lindsay and to Bambi. The newest addition of the family. Major League Baseball may be on its way. Minor League Baseball may not be coming, but – Dogs are always good. And welcome to our very first segment for Show Me the Merch. This is replacing the Unbox show that we had. We um, wanted to kind of adapt it a little bit now that this is not just a podcast, not just a web series. We're kind of doing both things at one time because we find that people consume the show differently. And I've been very excited with the numbers and and I wanted to make sure that we're appealing to everyone. So now we are going to show you the merch. And uh, we were at the Brazos Valley Bombers just this past week on Tuesday night. And it was my first collegiate summer league game. And the Bombers had always intrigued me because I um, love that logo is great. I'll put it up on the screen here. The, the logo is fantastic. And they were, you know, the first time out and, and I walked in and, and I was um, walked immediately to the, the pro shop to buy some stuff. It's sort of a, a, a booth and um, wanted to buy a jersey. They don't have them on sale yet. I think they have them on the web. So I'm going to get a couple, but really loved what we got. So I really love just the trucker hat with one of, again, one of my favorite logos in baseball period. And then I got uh, myself a very, very cool looking, comfortable T-shirt. And then my wife, Jessica, had to work. She was unable to make the game. So, of course, 
I had to make sure she got hooked up as well. So she got the gold. So all in all, really cool looks. And um, I, I can't wait to get more gear with, with all of this logo on it. And we'll definitely be back to the Brazos Valley Bombers. From the bleachers, the let's get to game of the week. And we're back here on From the Bleachers. And again, we were out at the Brazos Valley Bombers. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, give you all a view of the hat hair that's going on as I slide on my brand new Bombers cap for the segment. Like I said, it was my first collegiate summer league game. And it was, I'll be honest, a lot of fun. And one, I was impressed by the athletes. And I guess I shouldn't have been. But I mean, because these are all division one college players, which means they're good at baseball. And it was interesting to watch them. You know, they're a little rusty. So there were some plays that maybe weren't made that I would suspect would have been made had they had a full workout period or will be made, you know, a week from now. But the hustle, um, the how hard they played, uh, it was it was overall a great experience. I love the ballpark and. I think that I'm just somebody who loves ballparks because sometimes I like it when they're super ornate and new and modern. I'm thinking of the Durham Bulls facility, but there was something about grandstands and then seats up the side and then places for kids to play, something that felt much more casual and intimate. Um, the thing that struck me was sitting right next to the Round Rock Harryman bullpen and listening to the pitchers talk about what the mound was like because I'm that close. And that's not a proximity you get with any other level of baseball, uh, particularly matched with this high level of competition that we had. I was, uh, first of all, your standard hot dog size, Brazos Valley, I'm a fat guy who enjoys a good hot dog. Uh, I was just very impressed. Um, love the in-game entertainment. Like nothing was – was uh, no expense was spared. And the the gentleman that was running the in-between in, the in inning entertainment, you couldn't tell if he was playing to four people or 3,000. His energy level was high. He was doing a great job. He was making everyone feel like they were at home. Uh, the chicken dance thing was was fantastic. I think the thing that struck me the most when I showed up to the ballpark were two things. One, I appreciated how well everyone, both employees and patrons, took the social distancing. That just about everybody had a mask on. That the seating, even though it was general um, admission for a lot of it, at least where I, the tickets I got, um, they were, people were respecting it and it looked like the numbers were, were perfectly safe. And there was plenty of signage and plenty of hand sanitizer, all those things. The other thing that really kind of, uh, really just put a smile on my face was just how friendly the staff was. So, and it was, they looked all to be either high school kids or college kids. I'm assuming first jobs kind of thing. I assume a lot of them probably go to A&M. Um, but having, even as I'm walking, people say, ask me how I'm doing. Am I having a good time? Uh, something that struck me when I paid for my hot dogs. Thanks for supporting both teams. You know, and I don't know if that's standard operating procedure or if it's just the 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 woman behind the the counter recognizing we're all in a weird spot and it's just good for these kids to be playing. I don't know what it is, but I will tell you what it what it felt like for somebody who drove from Austin two hours to go to the game. It felt warm. 
and it felt welcoming. And it felt like, you know, as we continue to watch people's behavior, particularly like social media stuff, completely just go down the toilet, it meant the world to me to feel legitimately welcomed, to feel like my dollar, which wasn't very much because I think with two shirts and a hat and the food, I maybe spent 40 bucks, if that much. I felt welcomed. But the other thing that I will go right to the video on site to show you. Sometimes you wait a whole lifetime for something and then it finally happens. And yes, I out jumped a kid and no, I didn't give it to him. He learned a hard, valuable lesson about life. I over-exaggerate. I didn't actually run over a kid, but uh, yeah, my very first ever baseball, I'll get a, I'll get this puppy in a case. Never before have I caught a foul ball and, and it was uh, very special, but Brazos Valley, you have a fan in me. I will be buying more stuff. And as I was telling the, the, uh, the young lady that was selling jerseys and stuff, I will put in a bid for that Star Wars jersey. You just got to name a price. to close it out, the right-hander from Houston, Texas, James Christopher. So as we wrap it up, we do want to uh, have a little bit of fun. And, you know, it was sad and and yet inspiring to see all of these different teams react to this news in very different ways. And one of the things that caught our eye was that the Peoria Chiefs called dibs on their Midwest League championship. And it got me thinking that maybe I'm just going to decide who the Let's Get To champion is of each of these individual leagues as we kind of work through the rest of the summer. We're going to try to come up with some kind of gift or some kind of prize for those teams. And so first and foremost, Peoria Chiefs, you are one of my favorite brands in minor league baseball. And we confirm your dibs. You called dibs first. I saw some other people trying to snatch it from you. No way, man. No way. And so we're also going to go ahead and look at the South Atlantic League. And we have decided that, presto changeo, we will be declaring the Greensboro Grasshoppers champions of the South Atlantic League in the Let's Get To simulation. And by simulation, I move the mouse real fast. And because it's my show, it is my show. I'm going to go ahead and declare that the Corpus Christi Hooks have won the Texas League. And and look, I've got really good friends that are front office members of of this particular league. Uh, I'm sorry, but the Corpus Christi Hooks have won the Texas League, according to the Let's Get To simulation. And because I am a homer that does nothing but homer all day, we'd like to congratulate the Round Rock Express for winning the Pacific Coast League in the Let's Get To Heart Simulation. So uh, that is our show. We are going to be heading out to Normal, Illinois to check out the Colonel League this weekend. So we'll be back next week with some cool video and some anecdotes from that. So until next time, you know, the year's half over. It's July 1st when we record this, July 2nd when we release it. We're halfway through 2020, and I just feel like it's going to get better. So... Do your, do your best to stay safe, stay sane, and until next time, 
let's get to it. 